Good afternoon and welcome once again to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And just another reminder that Radiothon is only weeks away now. I hope you can play a part. Today, how you can help the children of Gaza. I'll be speaking with Yasmin from Olive Kids. Why thousands of young people are fleeing Morocco and also the Ebolton on Western Sahara with Dr Randy Irwin. Genetics Report with Bob Phelps. The Worldwide Campaign Against Killer Drones with Kathy Kelly. First part of the recent history of Chile with Sasha Gillies-Lakakis. And also fascism and bestiality in the Israeli forces with Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees. But first, let's hear it from Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jan, listener, when the perfect timing of the week award has to go to Big Supremo Scuttlebin Morlach's son, a.k.a. Scummo, and the gang for, on the very day the International Energy Agency declared there should be no new investment in coal and gas, while solar and wind projects need to be increased fourfold if the planet is to reach net zero by 2050, they, the gang, announced a new gas-fired power station at public expense because the private sector has decided new coal and gas power would be stranded assets. With the Minister for burying her head in the sand, Angus Tailings, boasting the government was investing in that which caring business class philosophy says is no business of government. We have to step in to make markets work the way they should. Indicating Angus has missed the little point that the market is, for once, working the way it should. As unplanned as the delicate flower that is the economy is, the energy and fossils lot are smart enough to know when it's time not to waste the profits their lazy, avaricious workers make for them. And let me assure the slightly cynical, the little matter of a New South Wales by-election in the very electorate where the government will move back into owning a power station held Saturday had nothing to do with the announcement. Scummo and Angus will tell us that they are honourable men. So are they all, all honourable men, as the bard wrote. Okay, he was talking about a gang of killers, but... And the Socialist Party Federal Member Meryl Swansong for principal welcomed the decision. We need the jobs. We need reliability of supply to ensure big aluminium plant Tom and Go fossils can continue to produce. I'm not backing down on this. See? Principles. Wonder what Merrill's doing to provide a transition for those workers when the fossils become fossils or the planet fries to death, whichever comes first. Although I'm sure she's working her guts out for them. Doubtless, Scummo and Angus and Merrill and the Socialist Party's former fossil spokesperson, Joel Fitzgibbon Prophet, who also applauded the gas plant, will tell us the International Energy Agency doesn't know what it's talking about. It's some long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden work in an iron lot bent on destroying the economy. Except for one minor point. The IEA was established by the world's fossils themselves to represent their interests. And even it can see the writing on the wall. It does also recommend burying your head in the sand and nuclear power, which apparently is totally benign, and Scummo and Angus and the gang and Merrill and Josh would go along with them there. 
Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony all being Uzi, nonetheless said the Socialists opposed the proposal. Uh, you're against building new fossil power stations, Anthony. Uh, no, no, we don't oppose them. We oppose the government building them. It's the business of the private sector. Another strong performance. Well, governments used to own them all, but thankfully we now enjoy the efficiency and policy certainty and the promised lower prices handing essential services over to the private sector has wrought. The dangers of socialism were exposed when the state socialist lot brought down a budget which imposed costs on the caring business class, hitting windfall property profits, for instance, and a levy on the filthiest rich of the filthy rich to fund addressing mental health. And after last week, when big economic guru Josh Frydem Icebergs gave the caring business class tax cuts and other incentives like massive corporate welfare to drive the economy and make life better for all of us, therefore receiving glowing media tributes, how that has exposed the dangers of socialism. Victoria's horror budget! The True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review P1 screamed Friday, and Lord Rupert of Wapping was in disbelief. He, he's Wapping sin, divided we spend, clash over class warfare. Fancy forcing the poor, filthiest rich of the filthy rich dears to spend a bit of that filthy rich on accountants and tax lawyers coming up with new ways of avoiding the new imposts, while, of course meeting all their legal tax obligations. That caring non-employer, which appears to make huge profits without employing anyone, deliver poo, will appeal a fair word, Trubler was, he no longer work choices, just looks like a decision, that it did employ a worker, it's sacked and must re-employ him and pay him what he's lost. Uh, so you sacked him because he didn't meet your time limits. Oh, that's right. The Liverpool spokesperson Rick Rippemoff confirmed, and he had to wear your uniform. Oh, that's right. And you allotted the work he had to do. Exactly, that's right. But he didn't work for you. No way. He is an independent contractor. Uh, does he have a business tax number? Stuffed if I know. What's that got to do with it? Well, he's acting illegally as a contractor. If he hasn't, you should report him to the tax department. A Liverpool, Liverpool spokeswoman did say, no satire, the company rejects the premise upon which the decision was taken, which was that the person who worked for them worked for them, and the company was appealing to protect the workers' freedoms, presumably the freedoms not to work for the company for which they worked, showing the appeal has nothing to do with ripping off workers, but Liverpool's concern for workers who don't even work for it. What altruism. Apologies to Zion over my erstwhile comments on its behaviour. Have I been wrong? Thankfully, my misconception has been cleared up by no less an expert and thinker than our former minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Alexander. The violence at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, Alexander informed us, with the wisdom he brings to everything, was provoked by Hamas to give poor Zion a bad name with evil Iran, the puppeteer behind evil Hamas. Poor innocent Zion lured into a venomous trap. And a two-state solution won't work because evil Iran and evil Hamas don't want it. 
So thanks to Alexander, we know the almost exponential seizure of the non-land to which the Palestinian non-land non-people were banished, leaving no space for the second state, has nothing to do with little problems in the two-state solution, nor that what is now Zion was once called, wait for it, Palestine, used to be the home of the non-state non-people, also has nothing to do with it. Or Alexander would have mentioned all that. Alexander is such a deep thinker, isn't he? It would be good if we could get him on this program to give us more of his pearls of. On matters of train killing, see the Socialist Party would-be minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Penny Left Wing, took aim at the minister for train killing and being a fence of Constable Peter Duffer and a couple of senior government bureaucrats and members claiming they should cool it over their alleged stress, alleged belligerence toward evil China when all Pete and the team are doing is warning us we would love to go to war and use up all that beautiful train-killing equipment we spend trillions on, or on which, but, or never mind. Anyway, just as Petty was saying, cool it, the socialist would-be minister for train-killing and being offensive, Pat Conraygun, was attacking Pete and the team for not spending enough on train-killing. Isn't it heartening indeed, reassuring to know a socialist government wants to spend even more? Our soldiers, sailors and air crew are not getting the equipment they need when they need it. Pat got stuck into the Conservatives. Uh, when they need it, Pat. Yes, yes, when they have to kill people. And you don't think those trillions could just perhaps be better spent. You won't say that when we have to kill people, like Chinese people. This is not about China. Great to see Pat getting into the spirit of the train-killing business, one of the world's biggest and most honourable industries. Which brings us back to the attacks on poor Zion by the non-land non-people. U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world big supremo Joe Biden capital simultaneously called for a ceasefire eventually, while approving 942 million real figure of precision-guided missiles for Zion. Well, why let a little bit of slaughter get in the way of a business deal? And thanks to precision guidance, all those innocent men, women and children are but collateral damage. Zion keeps telling us it regrets every death. There is a fairly simple way to avoid that regret, but what would that do for the great business that is the merchants of death? Finally, just a bit of fun to wind up the week. A quiz. It's a tough one. So big a challenge, I won't give her the answer till next week, because you'll need all that time to figure it out. This injecting room, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin is in a state of apoplexy over, it's uh, planned for Flinders Street, the government claims it has no plans for the whopping sinister that upset it. Two P1 sensation, sensation stories this week. Monday, nightmare on Flinders Street, it screamed. Wednesday, junkie town screeched at us, the quiz. Does the Whopping Sin's objective just report the facts unbiased coverage indicated A, supports the proposal, or B, does not support the proposal? Told you it was tough. Okay, you got a week to think about it. Good afternoon. And that was Mr. Kevin Healy. And don't forget, nine o'clock tomorrow for City Limits. 
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio a 5 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. One way you can help the people of Gaza recover from the latest slaughter is through Olive Kids. And yesterday I spoke with Yasmin from the group here in Melbourne and I pointed out to her that it must be very difficult when they're speaking to their friends in Gaza, they're on social media, to hear the stories of what has happened to the people there. It has been extremely difficult to hear their stories and we've also been um, obviously following the media with very close attention as well as talking to our partner organisations that we have on the ground. And it's been obviously at Olive Kids where a group of very um, dedicated and passionate volunteers and so are all of our supporters. Um, and those who support all of kids, this is a cause that's close to their heart. So it's actually been pretty distressing for, for all of us. Is the orphanage safe? Yeah, so um, thankfully at this stage, the orphanage hasn't been impacted. But, you know, there have been a few close calls. Um, and, you know, in, in the past with previous events that have happened over the years, they have been impacted. But at, at this stage, um, thankfully, the orphanage is safe. Can you talk about those two groups that you support here from Australia? So uh, we partner closely with the Al Amal Institute for Orphans and we've been partnering with them for quite a while since um, I think 2015. Don't quote me on the year but we have been partnering with them for quite a while and um, our relationship with them we have a child sponsorship program which covers expenses for orphans in Gaza as well as their education um, with 40% of the sponsorship held in a trust account for the orphan and it's only released when they are 18 years of age. We liaise with, with the Institute over there on a regular basis and they let us know who the most vulnerable are and where should we should be distributing a lot of our funds as and when it's required. And at this time, uh, we've got a current campaign at the moment, which is the Olive Kids Emergency Appeal for Gaza. This one came about due to the rapidly escalating attacks um, on Gaza very recently. So we're raising funds for medical supplies, a power for hospitals and food packages, as well as support for the displaced and impacted families. So um, as part of our campaign, we're trying to raise money for um, medical supplies and consumables for um, Al Alda Hospital and medical centres, fuel for generators at the hospital and the medical centres, because as you would know that um, there's severe power shortages in Gaza, which has been going on for many years. Um, and this is obviously critical for the hospital and the medical centres to continue to operate and help those in need. We're also raising money for food packs for those that have been displaced and impacted, um, as well as hygiene kits. Must be very stressful for the nurses and the doctors as well. Yeah, absolutely. How do you get the relief through? Uh, yeah, we, we send it through to our partner organisations and they assist us with distributing this to those that are in need. It, it is pretty difficult to get things into, into Gaza, so we rely on those that are on the ground to assist us with that. I know in previous times the Israelis have made it very difficult to rebuild the structure of Gaza. What are people telling you about what they're seeing on the streets? In terms of what they're seeing on the streets, a lot of the infrastructure has been severely impacted. Um, it's been damaged. It's 
it's a, it's a city in an area that's constantly having to be rebuilt because of everything that's can, that has been happening over the years and continues to happen. It's really tragic for everybody there, really. And it's not just the physical injuries to people, including children. It's the psychological damage every time there are these bombardments yeah. of their homes and their schools and their, their health clinics. That's right. A lot of the children and the families there have um, post-traumatic stress disorder. They're constantly having... Um, there's an extreme impact on their on their well-being and on their future just based on the psychological trauma that they have. Um, you may have even seen, I guess, like with social media, it's become such a really big and powerful platform over the over the years. There's definitely been a lot of coverage with what's happening on the ground, and it's actually really heartbreaking to see that there was a video that um, I came across on one of the platforms, and it, it basically showed a comparison of of a child in the Western world who lives a very privileged, safe, comfortable life, and there's a plane flying over over him, and he's very excited to see this aeroplane, versus a child that's actually in Gaza, and there's a, a plane flying, and they're panicking, hiding behind their parents, or running into their bedroom, hiding under the bed, because they're so worried about what's going to happen as a result of that plane flying over where they currently are. So this is just an example of, I guess, the trauma and the psychological stress. And where those bombs come over, there's very little places where people can hide or shelter. Yeah, very, very little. How can people help you in your work? People can support Olive Kids by making donations sponsoring an orphan. Um, there's plenty of orphans who need to be sponsored. Um, and whenever a catastrophe like this happens, there's unfortunately more and more orphans that come about. You can also volunteer with Olive Kids as well, um, just to see what campaigns or projects or fundraising initiatives we have where we might need a helping hand or two. And what's the place to go to? Yep, so if you go to um, www.olivekids.org.au, you can then um, do a forward slash donate and that will take you straight to our donations page where you can donate to our various campaigns. At the moment, our major campaign is the Olive Kids Emergency Appeal for Gaza in light of the current situation. Um, otherwise, there's also a form on the website where you can complete this form um, with your skills or interests, your attributes, and that way you can also volunteer with, with Olive Kids to see how you can make a, contribu a greater contribution to the cause, not just a financial contribution. And just to reiterate that all the people who work with and for Olive Kids are volunteers, all the funds go to Gaza. Yep. Uh, so I... Just to, to let uh, you and everybody know, Olive Kids is a registered Australian charity. Our mission is to improve the lives of Palestinian children through health and education programs and financial support for the most vulnerable. Um, we work very closely with those in Gaza. And Olive Kids is operated by a dedicated team of unpaid volunteers, primarily based in Melbourne. We all share the same vision where we would love to see a future for Palestinian children where they're living um, freely with really safe, full and happy childhoods. Thanks very much, Yasmin. Yeah, no problem. I was speaking with Yasmin from Olive Kids and if you'd like to help, 
the webpage again is olivekids.org.au. Three CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June, and this year we're asking you to be part of community-powered radio. It's only with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled, and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. 3CR Community Powered Radio. I'm speaking next to Dr. Randy Irwin, who's the editor of the e-bulletin for Western Sahara. But first, Randy, can we talk about what's happening between Morocco and Spain? on the border of Morocco. One of the things that's happened in the past week with respect to Spain and Morocco has been a real pushback from Morocco following Spain's admission of Sahrawi State President Brahim Valley after he was diagnosed with COVID and was quite ill. Morocco was very upset with Spain over their admission of the Sahrawi leader. Last Tuesday, we saw Morocco facilitate the um, movement of 8,000 migrants from Morocco into the Spanish territories of Ceuta and Melilla. And one of the things that's worth remembering is that when we think about Morocco and we think about the Moroccan state, we have to remember that Spain still has two enclaves in the very north along the Mediterranean. And those enclaves are walled off with quite tall fences and barbed wire, and then they open out onto the the Mediterranean. But if someone gets into Ceuta, then they're effectively in the European Union, and they're in Spain. Morocco has always been responsible for policing that border for Spain to make sure that migrants without documentation don't enter Spain. But on Tuesday, Morocco was said to have facilitated the movement of about 8,000 people, including children, to swim and enter through the fences to get into Ceuta. Um, This was said to be in sort of direct retaliation for Spain's admission of Brahim Valley into its hospitals um, for treatment, set up something of a bit of a diplomatic row, and it involved Spain sending the military out to the beaches to try to stop the flow of migrants coming in from Morocco. And it's set off a sort of chain of events that have followed since then. And are they still moving through? They are not moving through. So what happened was essentially those migrants moved through for a period on Tuesday in mass. And then on Wednesday, there seems to have been some sort of conversation between Spain and Morocco. Morocco has since begun policing the borders again, and Spain has sort of condemned the opening of the borders. There have been a couple of movements with respect to Brahim Valley that it seems like Spain is responding to some of Morocco's pressure um, against their 
acceptance of the Sahrawi leader into the Spanish hospital. So this feels very political. This is very much tied to Western Sahara itself. Listening to an interview with one of the young men who made it quite clear that he was very concerned about human rights in his home country, Morocco. He didn't want to leave, but he couldn't see a life for him there. And he emphasised yes. human rights. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, there's been a long history of Moroccans and also sub-Saharan migrants trying to move through to get into Suka. Um, and those borders have always been quite policed, both by the Moroccan state and the, the Spanish state. And so it's not surprising to see Moroccans moving across that border uh, as they try to make a, a different sort of life. But what what is surprising, um, particularly given the events of the last week, was the sheer number of people that were able to move so quickly, which, again, shows something of the Moroccan state's um, willingness to allow that movement as part of a breakdown in diplomatic relations. Ultimately, about 3,000 people were already were repatriated back to Morocco, the fault within 24 hours, which says something about the, whatever the negotiations were between the Moroccan state and the Spanish state around the movement of people. Well, let's talk about Morocco and Western Sahara and the disturbing news relating to human rights activist Sultana Kaya. It would appear that house arrest is not sufficient for the Moroccan police. Yes, that's right. So, unfortunately, Sultana has continued to be the target of a range of different types of violence. For the last two months or so, um, human rights observers with the organization Codessa were um, staying in Sultana's house with her family to observe the ways in which they were policed and to be human rights observers. May 10th, the Moroccan police broke in to the house overnight and they took the three human rights observers, Babouzid Babdi, Salik Baba, and Khalid Boufra, took them out of the house uh, they were, I believe, subject to violence and then abandoned in the desert. At that same time, police destroyed her home. They raided it. They stole things. And that, that received a significant amount of reporting from human rights organizations around the world. However, two nights later, the police did come back. They are said to have um, sexually assaulted uh, Sultana and her sister there's been a real significant increase in the sorts of violence that Sultana has faced, that her family has faced, and it is becoming a very, very difficult situation um, that really demands international attention and demands real action. Well, is it getting that international attention? I believe that it is getting international attention. So far, I'm not sure that that international attention has been enough to really push the Moroccan state and the Moroccan police. For example, there's been a letter that was written on the 21st from a range uh, from the Norwegian Support Committee for Western Sahara and the Association Americana de Juristas, and it was signed by uh, hundreds of organizations calling for the UN Human Rights Commissioner to act 
on these human rights violations and to bring an end to the, the violence that Sultana has faced since she's been under house arrest, which began back in November. She's been under house arrest for more than six months now. She has her mother in the house. There's a two-year-old living in this house. This can't, this can't go on. Uh, this sort of violence is absolutely unacceptable. It's politically motivated, and it, it is time for the United Nations to step up to pay attention to what's going on and to bring an end to this, this sort of violence. Would she be the only one subjected to this sort of house arrest? No, actually. There have been a number of individuals who have been subjected to house arrest quite recently. Um, another Sahari activist has been was put under house arrest on the 9th after she had a Sahari flag on her roof. They put her under house arrest, and the Moroccan police have also entered her home, broken things within her home. They've stolen equipment, money, and she also has a 12-year-old who is living in that house. So, you know, this isn't isolated. These sorts of house arrest strategies are increasing, as are the police raids. So there are a number of individuals, a number of Sahari activists and Sahari journalists who have had their homes raided in the past few weeks. So would you say that the situation is getting worse? It certainly seems to be, um, the violence and the house arrest certainly seem to be an increasing tactic or that the, the Moroccan police seem to be taking more liberties with this as a strategy. Sultana's house arrest has gone on for more than six months now without a real effective push for them to, for the Moroccan police to end that house arrest. And as a result, I think they're, they're likely a, a bit more emboldened to use this strategy on other activists and journalists that are reporting on those conditions, which has now made them a target. And this is one of the problems with the lack of a human rights mandate in Western Sahara. There, there aren't UN observers that are watching this and reporting on it. This is up to Saharawis who are living in the territory. As Saharawis who are living in the territory, those journalists are reporting on what's happening. They themselves become targets of this sort of violence as well. And that this creates a silencing effect, or it runs the risk of creating a silencing effect, and also putting people at risk as they try to amplify the message. So I think that it is, I think the problem is increasing. I think the use of house arrest and the extent of the house arrest as a strategy is a growing problem in Western Sahara. We need the international community to pay attention and to really say that this is unacceptable. There, again, as I mentioned, there, there have been a couple of letters that have been written and sent off to the United Nations, particularly the, the High Commissioner for, for Human Rights. And I think that that is one great strategy. You know, we need the UN to act. I also think that contacting MPs, contacting other governments is really useful to put some sort of diplomatic pressure onto Morocco as well. We've seen news reporting coming out of the U.S. We've seen statements coming out of a range of different human rights organizations that are calling this out. And that's useful, but I think that we also need a bit of a diplomatic push as well. Well, it seems that one area of pressure is working, and that relates to the Peers for Plunder 2021 report, and that shows that the export of 
phosphate from Western Sahara is decreasing. That is absolutely correct. The phosphates um, were at a record, a second year record low. Last year was a record low for phosphate exports in Western Sahara. And this year, the level of exports was similarly just as low as it was last year. So this is a good sign that their phosphate extraction has not increased and instead continues to be at a very low level. And this is a real testament, I think, to Sahari activists, to the international community who put pressure on companies working in Western Sahara to say, this is unacceptable. Saharis have not consented to this resource extraction and they don't benefit from it. Therefore, it's a violation of international law and you have to do better. And companies have heard that. Companies have withdrawn. And I think this has also been paired with the recent strategies around super funds, particularly the Norwegian pension fund, which has dropped companies working in Western Sahara as a result of their um, violations. I do think that this is encouraging. It says these sorts of strategies have been really effective. And hopefully it continues to disincentivize Morocco's presence in the territory. And perhaps similar strategies needed for the illegal exploitation of sand from Western Sahara. Yes, that's right. So sand has been an intermittent resource that's actually extracted from Western Sahara's beaches. The Canary Islands historically have a very volcanic coastline. Some of the closer Canary Islands benefit from that really strong desert wind that blows sand onto the island and covers the beaches. But others that are slightly farther away from Western Sahara actually don't benefit from that, that wind. And so we've, what we've seen is the actual extraction of Sahari sand delivered to the Canary Islands, which is something that is quite remarkable when we realize that there are Sahrawi refugees who are living in the refugee camps in Algeria who have never really been able to touch the sand that was their family's home along the coastline because they've been in the refugee camps for their entire lives. But tourists can travel to the Canary Islands and feel the sand that Sahrawi refugees have never been able to touch. What we need to, to realize is that this is also facilitating, you know, Canary Island tourism and things like that. And it, that's unacceptable. We, we need to put an end to all sorts of resource extraction coming out of Western Sahara that doesn't have the consent of Sahrawis and is a violation of free prior and informed consent under international law. Recognizing that this isn't just phosphate, it includes fish, it includes tomatoes, it includes sand, it includes solar, and trying to put together a recognition of the full totality of Sahari resources which are being utilised is really important. Talk about the connections between Palestine and Western Sahara. What we know is that during the Abraham Accords that were facilitated by the Trump administration last year in the United States, there was a, you know, quote-unquote normalisation of recognition between Israel and a number of countries in the Middle East, part of what that agreement facilitated was a recognition. The idea was that Morocco would recognize some of Israel's occupation 
um, in turn, the United States would recognize Morocco's occupation of Western Sahara as part of its sovereign territory, as part of Morocco's sovereign territory, and extend the Western Sahara borders into Morocco. What this has effectively done is empowered a range of settler colonial strategies that continue the dispossession of indigenous people that have really, I think, emboldened both Morocco and Israel in their respective settler colonial strategies for occupying, dispossessing, and erasing communities that they that they're seeking to displace. So Palestinians and Sahrawis alike, these are shared struggles that demand real international concern. When we recognize one settler colonial strategy, we have to recognize that this empowers other settler colonial strategies around the world. How are the Western Sahari people reacting to these settlers coming in? Saharis have had a a long struggle against Moroccan settlers moving into the territory. That goes back to the Green March in the 1970s when Moroccan settlers marched into the territory. There's been a you know a long process following the ceasefire in the 1990s to move Moroccans into Western Sahara as part of a strategy of turning Western Sahara into part of the Moroccan state. And Saharawis have really struggled against that. They've sought to be visible in the occupied territories. They wear the Melsa still. They, they want to speak Hassaniya. You know, they, they wave the Sahrawi flag. They, they try to maintain Sahrawi culture as a political move to not be erased, to not be erased by Moroccan settlers coming into the territory. And what we see in the context of Sultana's house arrest one of the things that has been a bit of a sticking point is the fact that she has the Sahari flag on her roof. We saw um, during the Gdansk movement a decade ago that one of the things that Moroccan troops really responded to was the haima, the traditional Sahari tent being set up. And that became another symbol of Sahari freedom and Sahari liberation and Sahari presence. And so what we see is very frequently Sahrawis become targets in the occupied territories when they make their presence visible as Sahrawi. And that is very much a strategy that is very much about a strategy of fighting erasure that is facilitated through settler colonial strategies. What we're talking about today and other times mm. is really second hand news from Western Sahara. We don't actually hear the voices of the people in the occupied territory. There is an opportunity, though, to hear the voices of two women in the Spotify. Yes. So one of the um, ways in which you can hear directly from Saharis is through a recent podcast that was started by Azria Khalid, who is currently in Norway, but she is a Sahari woman and Sahari activist who um, speaks on issues pertaining to Western Sahara. She speaks on Sahari sovereignty and Sahari identity, and she's a journalist. And I would highly recommend that listeners go and hear directly from Saharis themselves. The podcast is called Sandfast. The most recent episode with Nazha El-Kahali is in English, and so I highly recommend listening to that. 
And, that, you know, there are also some Sahrawi news organizations that do try to report out of Western Sahara. And so another great resource is also Nishata. And they do try to um, broadcast and amplify what's happening in Western Sahara, and it's a Sahrawi-run news as well. So the podcast is Sandfast, S-A-N-D-F-A-S-T. And the second one is Nushata, which is N-U-S-H-A-T-T-A. And finally, as I ask you each month, how are the people getting through the COVID-19? COVID-19 continues to impact Sahara refugees living in the camps. I don't have updates on the number of COVID cases, but what we do know is that Brahim Ghali, the leader of the Sahari struggle for independence, is in Spain quite sick with COVID. We know that COVID continues to spread through the camps. What we need to also consider is the ways in which vaccine equity might roll out um, around the world and pay attention to how we might service communities that don't have direct access to vaccines. We have seen Algeria provide some vaccines in the camp. And so I'm hoping that over time, with support from the Algerian state, that more Sahari refugees will continue to be vaccinated. And then we'll see those COVID numbers drop and, you know, life might resume to something closer closer to normalcy for Saharis. Not a very good normal, though. No, no, certainly not. Thank you once again, Randy. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. And Dr. Randy Irwin is the editor of the A. Portion on Western Sahara. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. And now on Tuesday Home Time to Bob Phelps from the Gene FX Network. Bob, we have talked about Bayer Monsanto for quite a while now about the court cases, but there is an update. Yes, that's right. The uh, the Bayer company, which bought Monsanto several years ago for $63 billion, uh, is in trouble still over the um, the court cases about the use of glyphosate, which is the herbicide Roundup, causing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. One of the um, earlier judgments has just been reconfirmed in the courts in the USA. So Edwin Hardiman has um, been awarded $25 million, and I think that may be the end of his case with a bit of luck. Dwayne Johnson's was confirmed at $20.6 million. And uh, the other 125,000 cases still remain to be settled in the USA. And the court has been telling Bayer, look, Bayer, your offer just is no good at all. We're not going to accept it. It's um, unfair to the plaintiffs. And uh, so it's ongoing. So Bayer is in serious, serious trouble. And I, I hope it continues. Bob, what about cases in Australia? Well, there are some uh, class actions going on here too. Um, At least two law firms are running class actions. They're progressing slowly through the courts here. And, of course, it's going to be a year or two before we hear anything about them. 
But I think this puts um, the users of Roundup on notice, and we've certainly been uh, doing our best to alert local councils that um, they could have liability issues as well about Roundup being used in their areas. And the latest to come up with that is that Moreland Council was to impose a total ban from August, but that's been challenged locally, particularly by land care users who say they need it to uh, manage the, the creek sides in Moreland Council area. And so it's going to come up again next month for discussion at the monthly council meeting. And we're hopeful that some more research will, will show them that they need to really get serious about the alternatives to using chemicals, both in weed and pest management around the municipality. Perhaps if some of your listeners are living in Moreland Council, they could uh, give uh, their local councillors a call and tell them that they'd like to be chemical free. Already 450 uh, local residents have told the council that they don't want Roundup sprayed in their area, and they, they're using other means to do their own weed management around their own properties. So it's on a roll, and uh, we're hopeful that Moreland Council will come to the party, perhaps not this August, but after it does some more research about the non-toxic alternatives to synthetic chemicals, that it will... Um, impose a ban on the use of Roundup in the municipality. It is disappointing when you think of groups who are out there to protect the environment around the creeks and then working on it for years and saying, well, we're not going to give up Roundup. Well, it's a, an oxymoron, isn't it? Is that the word to use? Well, I think they need to uh, get with the current thinking about this. I mean, Things like Roundup and Paraquat and various other herbicides really are toxic. They, they say, of course, that they're using them very selectively, but nationally, land care is quite connected to the chemical companies, and so they're still pushing on with business as usual instead of thinking about integrated pest management systems and the alternatives like the weed steamers, some of the... Uh, non-synthetic chemicals, pelagonic acid, for instance, which is an option. Uh, you know, they say, well, it's more time-consuming to use, it costs more, it's not as effective. So all of these sorts of arguments are still being put about. But I think that if they get an integrated package of different methods for different situations, they're working in nature. Nature is biodiverse, and if they're going to manage nature, then they one size doesn't fit all and just spraying one chemical uh, and relying on that is not the, the solution in the long run, particularly if it's a chemical that poses hazards to local residents and to the environment. And then you've got Bayer and I dare say other companies as well putting at risk the bees. Well, yes, yes. And uh, of course, this is a really hot debate in Europe, but it ought to be a much hotter debate here too, because... Um, Insects are under, under huge stress globally, uh, particularly those that pollinate plants on which we depend for food. You know, orchards, particularly things like almonds, need pollinators. And uh, several of the, well, there's a broad range of chemicals that are in the neonicotinoid pesticide class that um, are, are definitely killing bees in Australia and, and in Europe and other places where they're used. 
but the European Union's Court of Justice overturned the final appeal of Bayer against the use of uh, that class, some of that class of pesticides. There's still more work to be done. Some of them are still approved. But in contrast, what we see here in, here in Australia is that um, our Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority has a review going on of that particular class, the neonicotinoids, which are killing bees and other insects. It's proceeding at a glacial pace. Uh, it's an in-house review, and at some point, probably next year, a recommendation will be out of the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority for a brief public consultation. You know, then they'll probably give it a tick to continue, I would say, perhaps under uh, with some constraints on its use. But uh, judging by their past performance, particularly on the Roundup, the APVMA is going in the wrong direction. And indeed, a draft report on um, reviewing our pesticides and veterinary chemicals system is, is going in the wrong direction as well. It's about um, deregulation, speeding up the process, and outrageously accepting chemical uh, assessments from overseas, simply accepting new chemicals here on the basis that somebody else has approved them. And we said to the reviewers, well, if you're going to fast-track that, what about also fast-tracking those chemicals like the neonicotinoids that are being phased out in Europe? What about saying, if it goes in Europe, it's got to go here as well? No, they won't have a bar of that. Um, it's just a fast track for new innovations, more profitable chemicals, more efficiency for farmers and other land managers. It, it's all rah, rah, rah. And so um, a group of uh, groups and individuals have now got a, a consensus statement opposing the, um, the draft report. And if people wanted to find that and to sign on as well, the National Toxics Network if they go to the website, they'll be able to find the consensus statement on the chemical review draft. And it would be very good if people would sign up to that. There are about 140, I think, groups and individuals signed on at the moment. But the more, the merrier. Bob, are you aware of what's happening in the United States? Because I remember seeing a couple of documentaries about how overworked the bees are in the US. And they put them in boxes and they take them all over the country right throughout the year and I'd imagine that having those sort of chemicals wouldn't be helping them either. Not at all but of course that's a practice in Australia as well. Uh, beekeepers move their hives around as required to um, pollinate crop plants. You know producing honey is a small side business as far as the uh, beekeepers are concerned these days. Their main business is to go out into the fields, put their hives in and let them pollinate crops like canola and the trees like the almonds, as mentioned, but many others as well, that absolutely depend on pollination. And so, of course, yes, these bees are being transported across the country, dumped into foreign environments. Uh, it takes them a bit of getting used to. Colony collapse disease, of course, which is probably the result of the varroa mite, which we don't yet have in Australia, luckily has been a huge problem in the USA as well, where simply tens of millions of bees are killed. They go out of their hives and don't return. It appears that their um, homing devices are um, interfered with. 
really globally where synthetic chemicals and other adverse practices are happening, like in the USA and in many cases here as well, we've got these um, colony collapses, largely unexplained. Our pollinating insects and insects in nature as well uh, are not surviving. They're at the bottom of our food chain and we better take real care of them if we want to survive ourselves. Looking at South Korea, they're talking about stricter GM regulations being brought through. Do we have any trade in food and agriculture with South Korea? Oh, we do indeed. They're one of our major trading partners into, uh, into Asia. And of course, with the disruption of trade into China, they've become even more important. Uh, and what's significant there is that um, the South Korean public are standing up for GM-free foods as a result of their um, of public opposition, in fact, where officials were saying that they were going to do what's happening in Australia, deregulation and taking a much less strict approach on things like labelling, importation of GM foods and so on. The public has got very, um, very tetchy. It now looks as though rather than the, than the rules being um, less strict, as officials wanted, that government is going to actually put more stringent regulations on labelling, empowering shoppers to know what they're buying. And it's about time we have that here too. Um, the labelling is, is pretty unsatisfactory. We'll see it coming to the fore, I hope, shortly with the irradiation of all fresh fruits and vegetables being approved. Food Standards Australia approved, in principle, the irradiation of all fresh fruits and vegetables, which is to say that they will ex be exposed to large doses of radiation energy. Uh, they'll be basically sterilised with impacts on their nutritional value, possibly leaving radiolytic products in the fresh fruits and veggies. And we've um, stepped in and asked the supermarkets, are they going to be put, putting these... Uh, pre-treated fruits and vegetables into their regular fresh fruit and vegetable supply? Are they going to appear in the supermarkets as if they were no different from any other fresh fruit and vegetable? Now, there is a labelling requirement. It's not very satisfactory, but food ministers did decide and, and for Sands decided some time ago that labelling would be required. But at the moment, there's no indication of how that would be rolled out. So we're getting a new irradiation facility at the Melbourne fruit and veggie market. Anything that's suspected of harbouring a Queensland fruit fly in particular will be a candidate for being irradiated. We really want to know what's going to happen. We've written to all the major supermarkets and to date we had an acknowledgement from Aldi and that was all. It's unclear what's going to happen but what people could do there is to ring the minister who's on the Food Regulatory Committee, in this case the Health Minister Martin Foley, tell his office that irradiation of fresh fruits and vegetables is just not on. They still have the power to cancel that food standards approval. There's many, many good, good grounds, particularly for, um, for a cancellation. One of the major unresolved issues, which has been going on now for 15 years, is that um, irradiated animal food harms cats and dogs. There was a uh, major article in the media in New Zealand over the weekend renewing this issue, saying dogs and cats are at 
at risk from irradiated animal feed, and yet we're going to allow humans to be without full knowledge and consent to be exposed to irradiated foods as well. So it's about time that that particular issue got resolved as well uh, in favour of human health and safety. Why would they want to irradiate dog and cat food? Well, because in you know, importing particularly uh, things like um, dried meat for inclusion in animal feed, it might come particularly out of Asia. Who knows what the particular meat might be? Uh, we've seen how a market could potentially have done the COVID in Wuhan. I think everybody's just pretty nervous, and uh, irradiation of animal feed has actually been required for more than a decade. There are now warnings on some of animal feed labels. Some are prohibited for feeding to cats. Hundreds of cats in Australia disorders and dying from irradiated animal feed. Food standards have never really... They said, oh, that's species-specific. It's not going to harm humans. But the evidence was quite unconvincing that it was uh, confined to cats and dogs. So there are alternatives yes. to irradiating of fresh fruits and vegetables and destroying any nutritional value. The value that's being promoted so vigorously by health promoters saying we're not eating enough fresh fruits and vegetables and we should eat more. And then on the other hand, we've got this new technology that's going to degrade the quality and uh, nutritional value of our fresh fruits and vegetables and not resolve this issue. What's happening to our domestic pets from them eating the irradiated food it's still a mess, and food standards should not have given approval. Uh, so we need to go back to our ministers, in this case, Health Minister Martin Foley, and say to him, we don't want irradiated food. Please cancel the Fasan's approval. The ministers can do it, and they should do it. There are alternatives, and we need to use those alternatives for treating things like fruit fly, for dealing with biosecurity issues, not be zapping everything, with these huge amounts of energy. Does that mean that that irradiated food can also be exported? Well, yes, that's the other thing. It is a trade issue. A lot of countries like Vietnam, for example, now for all its exports to the USA is irradiating everything. Yes, it's, it's precisely that. And of course, that's uh, one of the reasons that some products have been irradiated here previously and they were on trial in New Zealand. Um, a trial was run to see whether or not people would accept them, but they were not properly informed. They did buy them, and the people who are promoting irradiation, which is basically the horticulture industry and the people who own the equipment, Steritech, which does other kinds of irradiation of hospital equipment and a whole raft of other things, are now in the business of irradiating our food stuff as well for trade and also for moving even interstate Trading interstate in some of these fruits and vegetables will require irradiation as well to ensure that the fruit fly doesn't get where it's not wanted. Of course, fruit fly is now pretty much ubiquitous throughout Australia. Our local fruits and vegetables may not be greatly irradiated, but certainly anything imported and anything traded to an area where um, the fruit fly isn't a problem and there's some kind of quarantine on it will, will require it and also stuff coming in from Asia, from New Zealand, with which we have a free trade agreement, of course, in food. Yes, irradiation is likely to be quite widely used. And the greatest insult, I think, is that 
it's being applied to that core of our food supply, our fresh fruits and vegetables, which are absolutely essential to the good health and longevity of the whole community. We're being told we should eat them. We should eat them, of course, but not irradiated. What can you tell me about mitochondrial DNA transfer? Well, yes, this is another thing that the government's up to at the moment. Um, uh, it's human germline gene manipulation. That's to say that um, mitochondria, which are in the cell of every human being, they're the powerhouse of the cell and, they, and mostly exist outside the nucleus. A few people, around uh, one child a week is born in Australia with some defect in its mitochondria. This is not a cure, but among that community that has some disorder in their mitochondria, the powerhouse of their living cells, there's now talk of producing babies that don't have mitochondrial problems. This is an IVF process. It would involve the taking of, a, of an egg from a woman who um, might have uh, some history in her family of a mitochondrial defect, taking the mitochondria out, and then transferring mitochondria in from the cell uh, donated by somebody else. The thing is that that would change the germline. Every future child of that line of people would be altered. And this crosses a line which has really been sacrosanct till now. That's to say, yes, we have given agreement for a person's genetics to be altered for gene therapy purposes. It hasn't really worked yet, but there's still in the research laboratories trying to change the DNA of individuals. But this is changing the, the, the human gene pool well into the future. And there has been a discussion about it, but a very non-public one, about whether or not the Australian community agrees to germline gene manipulation. We saw a couple of years ago in China that a scientist had done germline gene manipulation, that two uh, babies were born as a result of his um, experimentation. They had their germlines altered, and this, of course, created an ethical and moral storm worldwide, and that researcher is now in a Chinese jail for three years for breaking their law. And many, many countries have a prohibition in their law on germline gene manipulation, including Australia. What's now proposed is that the parliament will decide fairly shortly um, on a conscience vote. So each individual member of parliament and senator will have the job of deciding as an individual without party um, rules or constraints on a bill which has been brought in called Mitochondrial Donation Law Reform Bill 2021. Uh, it sounds like a lot, but if you look it up, you can find Maeve's Law. They've actually given a name to it of a young girl who's suffering from this disease. M-A-E-V-E apostrophe S, Maeve's Law. And uh, it was brought in on March 24th. Now we've got this business of all the MPs and senators uh, having to make a decision. They seem pretty uninformed, and we're now in the in the process of informing them and trying to get them all to vote no to this bill because it does cross the line. It does involve germline gene manipulation and it changes the law in a very, very profound way without consulting the Australian community 
The law prohibiting that kind of genetic manipulation has been in place since the late 1990s. There was a big discussion about it then. It was seen as appropriate. And now it's going to be lifted without any ado. It's got some, the Prime Minister, the Health Minister and some other heavyweights behind it. We're very, very concerned that this is simply going to slip through and open the gates for other kinds of germline gene manipulation as well. One of the things about it is that what's proposed in the bill is that at first it should be allowed to be experimental only in one laboratory initially, but then without any further public consultation or discussion, they're asking uh, us to accept that it would then become um, a clinical practice which anybody could use. And that's totally unsatisfactory as well. Going from research to clinical practice without any proper independent review except by an in-house committee of the National Health and Medical Research Council, which broadly is in favour of the change, is quite unsatisfactory. And therefore, we're asking people to ring up their local member and to um, intervene and tell them to vote no on Maeve's law when it comes before the parliament. We've got more information we can certainly provide to anyone who's interested in doing that. Uh, so they should contact me at GeneEthics, info at geneethics.org, or they can give me a bell on 0449-769-066. I think this is a really critical issue for the future of the human gene pool. We are making decisions potentially for every future generation of human beings, and I don't think that that's a power that we should uh, be exercising and we should be asking our MPs and senators to vote no on the bill. So I'd love to hear from anybody who uh, is willing to engage with that uh, discussion. When is the vote likely? The uh, lower house will be meeting, I think, in another two weeks. It can potentially come on any time, but unfortunately they don't give you much notice about these things. I'd say we've got a month at least uh, to do the campaigning and the information and uh, may go to Canberra to have a talk face-to-face uh, -to, -face to the politicians. We'll certainly be communicating with them about our concerns and trying to uh, put them in the picture. Some other groups, uh, particularly religious groups, are already, I understand, also engaged in the same way. Of course, we are taking a strictly secular approach that this is not in the public interest, uh, whereas the, the religious groups will be, I think, um, putting their own particular faith-based views about it and I'm hopeful that together uh, we will be able to prevail and let the MPs and senators see that the community is not ready for this breach in the um, what is basically a global ban on germline gene manipulation. It's illegal uh, in the USA. There's been a qualified agreement to this particular manipulation in the UK five years ago but the interesting thing about that is that Nothing useful at this stage has come out of that five years of research. It's premature at the very least, without public discussion or debate, for the Australian Parliament to go ahead and agree to this uh, putting the human genome under siege because we know that it can be done. We saw that with the, uh, her, the uh, researcher in China. He did it with the uh, tacit approval of Several other researchers around the world also have the technology and the know-how to 
uh, breach the prohibition on germline gene manipulation. But at the moment, the only thing that's restraining it is the laws in uh, a large number, I think, approaching 100 countries that have laws prohibiting it. There was, until very recently, a global scientific consensus that germline gene manipulation really just was a step too far, that it could be done and that it shouldn't be done because we're really determining what the human germline gene pool is going to look like forever. Of course, there are all sorts of other possibilities like the enhancement of humans. You want a sporty child, the IVF industry can give you one. Uh, you want more IQ, yes, we've got it here off the shelf, etc., etc. 2020 vision, sure. Don't want to go bald, fine. Th these are the frontier issues, the issues down the track when you start talking about uh, the g human germline being manipulated by the mega global IVF industry, as it now is, which um, you know would like, I'm sure, more tools in its toolbox. This, to me, this current uh, application looks like a push from the IVF industry to do just that, to get another thing that it can sell to unsuspe unsuspecting customers. And that's not satisfactory. We're uh, sacrificing our morals and our ethics over the human germline in the interests of commercial interests and the interests of certainly a small group of people who have got a health problem. But I don't think for that reason we should do it because, again, there are alternatives. The IVF industry already offers those people in vitro fertilization with uh, good quality eggs and sperm. It does offer uh, other alternatives like screening of embryos and so on and so on. And it's just another step along the way of um, starting to turn the human germline, the human gene pool, into just another commercial product for sale. Not good enough. And certainly not. That was Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Hi, Hi. we're from Rayburn College, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 8.55am. Today the topic is Art Against Drones and also journalists and human rights activists against drones. But we begin with Arts Against Drones, looking at an article written by Cathy Kelly, now with the new group to end all wars. Cathy, you begin with this article talking about a drone on a 25-foot-high steel pole in New York City and the artist is Sam Durant. But a few years back, before Sam, you highlighted the work of another New York artist, Raphael Bilat, first from 2007 and late 2010. Can you recount his two activities bringing war to the attention of both local citizens and users of the internet? Well, Raphael Bilal is from Iraq, and very tragically, in 2004, his brother, Hajj, was killed. He was killed by a United States air-to-ground missile. And he, Wafa, felt very, very aware of how vulnerable Iraqis were. Uh, his brother had been at a checkpoint, and um, 
was killed. He was an innocent victim. So Wafa decided that he would lock himself in a cubicle. And inside the cubicle was a, a paintball gun. And it wouldn't be lethal if someone shot the paintball at Wafa, but he was certainly vulnerable. He had a plexiglass shield in front of him, and he stayed in that cubicle for a month. And by Internet, online, anyone who chose to could shoot the paintball gun at Wafa Bailao. So in no time, the back wall of this cubicle was just dripping with rancid yellow paint and sometimes Wafa would be hit if he stood up and um, moved around in the room. He certainly gained a deep insight into the vulnerability of his brothers and sisters all across Iraq. And he called the project Domestic Tension. When he wrote a book about it, he called his book Shoot an Iraqi. And over 60,000 people from 128 countries tried to shoot Wafa Bailao with the paint gun. Now, others tried to intervene and, and aim the gun in a different direction, which you could also do online. And many, many people engaged in chats, conversations with him over the course of that month. So that was his first project, using his own body as a, a way to explore questions and controversy with regard to Iraq. What was his reaction to that publicly after that month? Well, he didn't complain, uh, and he, didn't, he honestly didn't seem traumatized. But he, he did believe that this was uh, an aggression against someone who had done no harm to another person. It, it seemed he felt to show an almost sadistic desire to be able to target somebody and, and hit somebody, even though that person was no threat whatsoever to the person that was going to aim and try to target him. It says something about certain parts of humanity, doesn't it? Well, yes, and also writ large, it says a lot about United States governmental wars of choice waged against people who mean us no harm, and yet, you know, constantly targeting and eliminating people and often hitting the, you know, the wrong target, not even the one they thought that they were going to hit. Now, three years later, he developed another artwork. What was that one? Well, that he called And Counting. And that one was extremely painful. He bared his back to a tattoo artist who tattooed the names of major cities on his back. And then a dot was added as close to the city as the place where someone was killed in the war in Iraq. And so... If the per person was Iraqi, the dot that was inked in through the tattoo artist was indelible. You, you couldn't see it with the naked eye. You had to use a sort of a black light to be able to see it. If it was an American, then it was a red visible dot. And 
One report said that uh, shining that black light around the city of Basra, where it was situated on Wafa Bailao's back, revealed an image that was like the sun. There were so many, many, many dots. He literally bore on his back the names of all the people who were killed because those names were read. And it took 24 hours, and people took turns as volunteers reading the names while the um, dots were being tattooed on Wafa's back. Are you aware if he continued his anti-war activities after 2010? Well, I was so grateful to just get an, an email from him the other day encouraging me to keep up with our work to uh, build what we're calling Ban Killer Drones, a campaign for an international treaty to prohibit drone warfare. Uh, he's, he's still teaching also at uh, the Tisch Gallery at New York University. And um, I, I am hoping that he will join us as we try to grapple with another installation that's going to be happening in New York, and that is uh, going to be called Untitled, and then in parentheses, Drone. And it will be an installation of a replica of a Predator drone. Talk more about that one. Uh, well, that one will be installed on a 25-foot-high a pole in an area of New York that's very popular as a tourist site. To get to it, um, one goes to Lower Manhattan, and then you ascend two very high flights of stairs. And then you're on what was once an old freight train line, but it's been turned into a promenade and alongside it on either side are very interesting works of art and architecture. The people who go to the High Line at the end of May after this installation will then be looking up at what will seem to be a replica, I'm sorry, will seem to be a predator drone gazing down at them. And then, of course, down further below in the, uh, the lowest street, they'll also be looking up even higher at this drone. But of course, the drone that the artist Sam Durant is going to install won't have a surveillance camera mounted in its belly and it won't have two Hellfire missiles, which the real Predator drone has. In fact, the Reaper drone not only has two Hellfire missiles, but also carries a 500-pound bomb. Artists wants to stimulate discussion and controversy. And of course, as you've pointed out, it's not just artists who are against drones. It's activists like yourself, as journalists. Right. Well, we're interested... Um, to find out, first of all, exactly when the installation will occur. And, and a number of us are wondering if it wouldn't be a good idea to um, do what we've done often outside of military bases that operate drones, the real drones. We've had die-ins, you know, lie down and cover yourself with a bloodied sheet and put the name of a person or the name of a country that's been attacked because of these drones. And I, I think you know, many people in the United States see drones as a, a, a way to engage in, in, in 
less reckless warfare, more precise targeting, saving civilian lives. But that's not what has been tallied as people um, around the world have have looked to see what the consequences of the drone attacks have been. There are so many stories of civilians. I mean, I think of the Afghans in the, uh, the Wazir Tangi area of the Nangarhar province who were cultivating pine nuts as migrant laborers in the field. And uh, they were hit by a drone, even though the owner of the the pine nut forest had said to the U.S. and NATO and United Nations officials, look, you know, I'll have a big group of people, 150 workers, but they're there to do just that, to work for me. And the drone that hit them killed 30 of those workers just as they were getting ready to take their rest after a long day of work. How many places do you know of in the United States where these drones are manufactured? Mm. Well, you know, Jan, when you think about the component parts, I probably can't even begin to answer your question because there are so many companies that make component parts. But we're very aware of um, General Atomics as being a major manufacturer and a major profiteer of um, the drones. Uh, Also, companies like Raytheon, Boeing, General Dynamics, Lockheed Martin are are all involved in kind of a competition to manufacture the drones. And then we have uh, military bases in quite a few places across the United States where drones are being operated and where people come from all around the world, in fact, to be trained in how to operate these drones. And, And the same is true in the United Kingdom. The same is true in China. Although um, certainly the U.S. and the U.K. right now have the the most sophisticated drones and drone networks going on. And, of course, as you said, they're not just staying with the United States military. They're being sold overseas. You know, that's something that may become an, an increasing source of concern to other countries and even to the United States because the proliferation of the drones means now that using 3D technology, people who are um, non-state actors, like Ansar Allah, informally called the Houthi, have been able to acquire drones, and they fire those drones across the border from Yemen into Saudi Arabia. They've hit Saudi installations and Saudi airports. And, you know, when you think about the capacity to affix bombs, including bombs that might, you know, carry, um, you know, payloads of, uh, you know, even chemical weaponry to drones which are not hard to acquire, uh, this could become extremely dangerous. One person the other day on a phone call talking about this said, you know, when chemical weapons were banned, Part of the impetus for that was because when countries would use chemical warfare, the wind could shift directions and the chemicals could blow back, the gases could blow back on your own troops. So it could be that this weapon proliferation could be something that would deter nation states from exporting and using the drones, but you can bet that the companies making them aren't going to want to let that happen.
I'm just wondering whether the fact that drones now are produced as plaything makes it more difficult to ban them when they are weapons. I think we should look to the procedures of the people who work to obtain a treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons. And, and uh, we should also look to those who try to ban landmines and cluster bombs. Uh, it's, it's not an easy process, but I think that when people are very determined and keep on building international support and using the UN as best they can for um, trying to find ways to make these procedures, I'm sorry, these um, productions illegal. It, it, it's difficult, but it's not impossible. And of course, this is a worldwide campaign. We have a campaign here in Australia against the killer drones. Yes, it's really very, very good to see how many people all across the world are, are campaigning. We just had a webinar this morning with two people from the UK, uh, Chris Cole with the Campaign Against the Arms Trade and Councillor Maya Evans uh, with Voices for Creative Nonviolence. And I think that it's true some of the initial anxiety and alarm about drone warfare may have tapered off a bit, but I, I think we're going to see an uptick in international concern to try to ban the weaponized drones and also the police and military use of surveillance drones uh, because, you know, the police groups can now begin to affix tear gas on drones and attack uh, people who are demonstrating peacefully. And, and this has been recorded already. Uh, some of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations have been patrolled by drones, and Israel has used weaponized drones against people who are demonstrating on the streets below. I've been speaking with Kathy Kelly from the new group to end all wars. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel, and it is unlawful. Every day, a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. When we look at the history of Chile and South America, we remember the Pinochet coup in 1973, and the terrible violence and destruction that followed this US-backed removal of the Allende government and its supporters. Today and continuing next week, we look back on that period of Chilean political history and perhaps the lessons learnt and much more. To do that, I spoke with student and activist Sasha Gillies-Lakakis. Sasha, we're looking at the recent history and present reality of life for the majority of the people of Chile, Salvador Allende was elected president in 1970 
and was there until the US back coup on September the 11th, 1973. How much of an aberration was his victory? And what did his presidency mean for those short years? Salvador Allende's election victory was, was really quite a significant milestone, not only in Latin America, but, but around the world, but, or depending on how you look at it, but most people recognise it as the first time that a socialist or a communist presidential candidate actually achieved power through the liberal democratic system, through the two-party system. That rattled the, the elite in Chile, and it, of course, rattled the, uh, the American elite, the US elite. Because you know he didn't rely on he didn't rely on a you know a violent seizure of power or or sort of an, an extra legal or an extra political way of getting to power he he played by their rules and he won. Chile had never had a, a leader this radical. Chile had always been politically speaking one of the more conservative countries in Latin America, but Allende's reforms even in that three year period were seriously immense for Chile. I mean of course you have the uh, nationalisation of the copper mines in Chile. And, and of course, that only partly got underway before um, before the coup happened. Um, but even then, it was generating millions of dollars for the country, whereas previously that had been the exclusive domain of chiefly U.S. companies in Chile. And he he also looked at renationalising uh, a lot of other minerals in the country. He implemented an agrarian reform program, a land reform program, um, to break up the large corporate land holdings, particularly in the rural areas. He was very good with workers' rights, of course. He passed a range of legislation that allowed sort of really independent grassroots trade unions to become quite powerful in Chile. And, of course, you have his, his foreign policy. You can't forget the global aspect of Allende's time in power. Of course, he, he sought really close ties with Cuba. Um, naturally, he and Fidel Castro were very good friends. He uh, often got a lot of advice from Fidel Castro. And, of course, when the coup eventually does happen... Uh, the story goes that he ends up shooting himself with a rifle gifted to him by Fidel because he would rather do that than be, than be kept prisoner by the military regime. I'd imagine, Sasha, there would have been a fair bit of resistance from both within Chile and, in particular, the United States once he gained power. Yes, and, of course, this is really the textbook example of CIA intervention particularly, of course, in a Latin American country. Um, we now know for a fact there's numerous declassified documents, there's numerous um, speeches from President Nixon that prove that the US was intimately involved in overthrowing, toppling the Allende government. Uh, Nixon himself, uh, to quote him, said that we need to make the Chilean economy scream. And that is exactly what the US did. Um, they slapped really quite uh, far-reaching sanctions on Chile, not quite as severe as Cuba, but they were they were actually pretty close. I don't think people realise how um, isolated economically Chile became because of the US offensive. And then, of course, within the country domestically, you have the CIA funding both violent and non-violent, quote unquote, opposition groups. You know, with the violent groups you had, they were outright fascist organisations. For example, um, Fatherland and Liberty was a group that operated in the lead up to the coup. They were a fascistic movement. And then you had the non the non-violent movements that were equally as potent in a different way. For example, the organisation of Chilean Catholic women, uh, which brought together the middle and upper class Catholic women of Chile who were opposed to Allende's socialist policies. And all of this served to really sort of polarise the, the society in Chile. Of course, the, the CIA funneled millions of dollars into making Allende seem like some crazy dictator, when, of course, as we know, the opposite is true. He won, he won the election democratically. 
and just as an interesting side note, we also know that there were at least two ASIO agents in Chile at the time working with the CIA. Uh, there's not that much information on what their task was, but um, that's a pretty disturbing Australian connection to, to this whole event. And US aside, obviously the US was heavily involved. You have domestic Chilean interests. And of course, there's a, there's a very powerful Chilean oligarchy chiefly linked to the, to the mineral industry in Chile and further south, the timber industry. They were immediately hostile. I mean, even before he won, Allende won the election, they were backing the other horse. They were backing the Christian Democrats. They were backing the right-wing parties, whoever was going to potentially be able to defeat Allende. And then, of course, you have the military. And, and from the, as early as the 1920s, uh, military figures had been inserting themselves into various government positions, uh, into various government cabinets, so it was a deeply compromised system that Allende had to work with. Wasn't there an Australian connection with a mining company? That definitely rings a bell. Um, I wouldn't be able to tell you the specific name, but yeah, and I mean, you know, this is the thing. It wasn't just American interests. I mean, of course, they were the chief architects behind this coup. But the, the British as well have, have significant proper interests in Chile. They have ever since they, they supported Chile in the war against Peru and Bolivia in the Pacific War back in the 1800s, and a range of other European countries as well. Even domestic, domestically in Latin America, you had um, Brazilian corporate interests um, and, of course, Australians. So all of these countries were complicit in Allende's overthrow. And, of course, you can, you can see that once it, once it actually happens, you know, who's, who's condemning it? You know, it's not Australia um, didn't say anything. Obviously, America didn't because they supported Pinochet. And in fact, really the two main voices of um, opposition to the coup were Cuba and the Soviet Union. And they actually, in three to five years after the coup, they ran what was called Operation Toucan, which was basically a, uh, well, that in the West it's called a propaganda attempt, but really it was an attempt to expose the coup and expose the human rights violations that were taking place under Pinochet. And unfortunately, I don't think it received very much reach outside of the socialist bloc itself. How active were the hierarchy of the Catholic Church during Allende's presidency? As is the case in, in many Latin American countries, there's, there's always different traditions of, of Catholicism. You, you did, of course, have your, um, your more progressive priests, your, you know, your liberation theologist-type priests, but the overwhelming, you know, the power structures and those who controlled them inside the Catholic Church itself in Chile were overwhelmingly from the conservative Christian right. They gave their endorsement of, um, of Pinochet when he took power. In the lead-up, uh, you had a lot of Christian organisations, religious organisations that were at the forefront of these anti-Allende demonstrations or the anti-Allende violence. So the Catholic Church, and it's important to note that this was the, um, the ideological, I suppose, branch of the attack against Allende. I mean, of course, you had the physical in the form of the military, but, um, you know, Catholicism is, is a very powerful force in Chile. Chile... Uh, perhaps more than, than several other Latin American countries, is a very Catholic country. So, you know, when you had church newspapers and church, um, church leaders saying that Allende was going to... Because they, they did the same thing in Cuba. They said that, oh, Allende's going to ship your children off to Russia or, or you know, he's going to destroy the churches. Um, we're, we're all going to go to hell because he's the president. You know, it, it, people do actually did actually believe this stuff. And, of course, it was particularly the middle and upper classes who... Said that they were they were supporting these anti Allende movements in the name of um, 
religion or, or what have you. But um, of course, it was always tied into the class character of these groups as well. Because, because amongst the very poor, even though there were a lot of poor Catholics in Chile, you didn't see them massing on the streets against Allende. It was, it was the middle and upper class and the middle and upper class religious people who, who were out on the street. But certainly the, the Catholic Church was um, very influential in, in turning the minds of Chile against Allende. So there was a forewarning or a, fore, a foreboding of a coup? Would that be correct? Yes. Early in early 1973, once, of course, the US sanctions are really beginning to bite. And I will mention, though, that Allende, in the first year and the bit of his presidency, his economic reforms, his socialist economic policy, was actually really good for Chile. Um, the economy jumped between 8 to 12% in terms of GDP, which was um, a really strong growth. Um, but of course, once the sanctions begin to bite, you know, you, you have you have suppliers running out. Um, you have a very similar situation to Venezuela, actually, you, when you have companies and private supermarkets hoarding food and things like that and fuel. You have some compromised workers movement, exactly like what happened in Venezuela, except this time it was in the copper industry and they begin going on strike against Allende. You have some members of the coalition of um, Unidad Popular, popular or his popular unity coalition, uh, begin to desert him in early 1973. It's, it's not a sense that something is, was definitely going to happen, but there was definitely, you know, a sense that things were beginning to fall apart. Uh, and, of course, by no fault of Allende himself, it was, um, it was a war that they were waging against him, that the US and the Chilean elite were waging against him. And they were really successful in the end. By late 1973, there is a sense that the military is going to take action. Um, there's reports that the military has been meeting with Nixon. President Nixon was a personal friend to Pinochet. And the military begins making these comments, these public um, media appearances. Not so much Pinochet himself, but other military figures who, who are stating that they're concerned with the state of the country and that, that the military might need to take action if order isn't restored. The, you know, the typical line the military normally does before a coup. And then, of course, the, the famous second September 11 happens, which is when the military lays siege to La Moneda, the presidential palace, and they, they take over the palace. And as I said before, we don't know whether or not Allende was killed by the military forces or whether he killed himself with the rifle that Fidel Castro gave him. I, I think more evidence points to the latter, but you, you can never be sure. I mean, we don't even really know what happened um, to a lot of Allende's allies in, the, in that period. And then after that, the military begins to consolidate its power. Well, we all know, or most of us do know about the brutality of the Pinochet era, which remained until 1990. But what did it mean in terms of the economy of Chile? Yeah, of course. I mean, everyone is aware of the, the fact that the Pinochet regime was, I would say, not only in Latin America, but in the world, it was one of the most brutal dictatorships. You know, conservative estimates of 30,000 people killed, raped, tortured, disappeared. And the Latin American Centre for Mental Health Research um, has estimated that, um, again, as a conservative estimate, 200,000 Chileans have suffered severe mental trauma and still have some form of mental illness because of that period. And both cases are likely, uh, well, they're definitely um, conservative estimates. We'll never know how many people actually died and how many people uh, are carrying the trauma of that period. But the, econ the economic aspect is interesting because, of course, one of the main talking points, um, even before Allende was overthrown, and this is the case with many socialist countries when they, when they come under siege, is that they can't manage the economy properly. 
there's a capitalist leader um, and the, the powers of the free market need to be given precedence so that they can, um, you know, work their magic and everything will, will get better. Well, in Chile, you have the first experiment in neoliberalism. So a, a group of uh, very wealthy Chileans, supporters of the, um, of the military coup, in fact, many are, are the sons of generals, go to study um, with the Chicago boys in the US, um, you know, the infamous group who formulated the ideas of neoliberalism. And they return to Chile, they return to Pinochet with this program for Chile, and Pinochet implements it. Now, of course, neoliberalism, the, the whole foundation of, of neoliberalism and the justification for implementing it is that it um, increases efficiency and productivity and that it will lead to economic growth if the state just butts out of, um, of economic affairs. Now, what happened in Chile, they did all that. They privatised most, um, most industries, they privatised most sectors. They, um, they welcomed a lot of new private capital from multinationals, chiefly US multinationals, but also European um, and others. And do you know what happened? In 1982 to 1983, Chile suffered one of its worst economic crises in history, even worse than Allende's, than Allende under the sanctions, um, under the US sanctions. And the, the economy got so bad, uh, went into such a nosedive, and, and you know, well, I mean, inequality was already, already rising, but inequality rose so much, the price of basic goods rose so much, that the military regime had to renationalise Chile's two main banks. So they had to return to a sort of socialistic policy, at least in the banking sector, to save the failed neoliberal experiment. And we'll hear more from Sasha Gillies-Lakakis on the history of Chile next week. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep us going for another year. Independent community media is more important than ever and we need your support to power community radio. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 039419 or drop in at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR Community Powered Radio. On Sunday, I spoke to Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees, human rights activist and much more, about three topics. And the first one is an article he wrote, which was published in the New Bush Telegraph. It's called Fascism and Bestiality of Israeli forces, and I asked him to explain what he meant by that phrase. I mean, I'm using the words fascism and bestiality because that is an accurate description of what is, what is going on. The fascism means that the disempowering use of, of violence to drive people from their homes on the basis of massive prejudice. That was what has been happening in East Jerusalem. The bestiality is the business of killing and injuring without any sense of remorse or regret, but only the desire to continue. And that is what the Israeli forces have been doing. And the media around the world collude by calling this a war as though we've got two sets of balanced forces. And that's another huge problem. Well, it's not even a, a conflict, is it? 
No, no, no. It's not a conflict. It's an organized slaughter. I know Hamas has fired rockets, homemade rockets, and some uh, Israeli citizens have unfortunately lost their lives, and some, a few buildings have been damaged. But compared to the massive onslaught by the Israeli forces, I think the, the kill ratio is something like 20 or 25 to 1. It's, it's organized slaughter. It always has been. The idea that it's a war is a misnomer. Well, the Israeli um, forces are one of the most powerful in the world, are they not? Correct. You've got um, a, a nuclear-powered country with a massive army, navy and air force, always well supplied by the Americans, against a people with no army, no navy, no air force, hardly any diplomatic or economic resources, and yet the media and politicians call for balance. A balance with regard to that conflict is an obscene word. Also, just listening to the news again tonight, the Hamas militants, they're not Hamas soldiers or army, they're... No, no, no. That's another way. That's a very good point. I mean, I talked yesterday to people who said they didn't know too much about um, Israel-Palestine, but they said as soon as the word militant is used, you get a picture of of one side being the aggressors who have, uh, are completely in the wrong. Now, uh, the word, you know, militant Hamas, militant Palestinians, but, but always the implication that the Israeli forces are as pure as the driven snow. They, the, the media has got to learn to stop using this adjective militant. They must learn to be more courageous and more accurate in their descriptions of what is going on. What disturbs me is when the world sits back and allows this to happen, and like in the last couple of days, the UN members and others go in and survey the damage and say, oh, there's so much aid has to be brought in. Why don't they do something to stop Israel in the first place? Well, absolutely. My, I mean, my view is that uh, the settlement of this problem is easy. If the international community, the European Union, Australia, all the European so-called democracies, even the United States, if they were to use nonviolent pressure to say that United Nations Resolution 242, go back to the 1967 borders, this is called international law, we will not tolerate people disobeying it, you could settle the issue almost overnight. The word complexity gets thrown in as a permanent means of postponement, as a permanent means of enabling people to think that the only armed force putting people, I mean, making people submit entirely, destroying them, destroying them and their lives and their resources so that they have nothing, that that's meant to be the solution. We even give credibility to this liar, uh, Netanyahu. I mean, we keep giving him so much oxygen and the American Congress has allowed him to come, allowed him to go to, to their capital and um, basically abuse President Obama. I mean, what is the world thinking of? All those issues need to be discussed much more accurately. I mean, one last example, Jan, is that yesterday there were massive protests on behalf of the Palestinians across every Australian city. I was in a big demonstration in Wollongong, for example. There was nothing on the nightly news, on SBS, ABC, and the commercial stations. They 
ignored it, I suspect because they were scared stiff of appearing to be even slightly critical of the behaviour of the Israeli government. And the children are the ones who suffer, aren't they? They've killed about 250 people. This is regarded um, as restraint because they haven't killed quite as many as they did in Operation Cast Lead. But I think over over 50, 60, to, between 50 and 70, small children have been slaughtered. And, and we're supposed to uh, go away and think that, um, you know, the, the, major, the major issue is whether we can give more subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. The immorality and completely unethical behavior of privileged Australia is, is deplorable. And you'll get not much joy out of the Labor Party. No, no, the Labour Party needs that. I don't know whether if you get the Pfizer injection and the AstraZeneca, whether there's a dose of courage in it as well, but that's what they desperately need. They've got to, I mean, some of them do, but they've really, the leadership has got to learn to speak truth to power. They've got to be able to say, look, the most important document of the 20th century, it's called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, is what we stand by in domestic policy and in foreign policy. And on those grounds, what has happened to the people of Palestine must end. The siege of Gaza must be lifted. The occupation of the West Bank must end. The relief for the millions of people stuck in wretched refugee camps must end. I mean, there would be a volume of support for the Labour Party if they had the courage to say that sort of thing. But I don't know what, you know, they want to be a man for all seasons and appear to stand for nothing very much. Well, there's a lot of people now, including Human Rights Watch and also groups within Israel itself, who've named Israel as an apartheid state, yet it just can't get through to the politicians and the media here. Yep. Look, it's partly because of this absurd allegiance to the United States and, and, and to Israel. I mean, you can't distinguish between Israel and the United States. They're one and one, because in the same breath that... Um, President Biden is asking for moderation or for, for a ceasefire. He's promising millions and millions more, more uh, dollars worth of, of arms to Israel. The contradiction needs to uh, dawn on people in that sort of thing. It's a good question. How do people change their minds? So you have to re My experience is that you have to repeat arguments in a rational, sometimes sort of emotional way, in conversations to people. I've done that with, for example, pretty affluent bankers in Manhattan who only took an Israel right or wrong point of view. But after several breakfasts and coffees with them, when they, they hadn't heard an alternative point of view, they're not allowed to, they have become pretty generous supporters of, um, of Palestinians. But it needed, <laughs> it needed repeated conversations in a, it's, a, it's a certain kind of rapport with people. But, you know, the media doesn't help because it, it's as though Fox News runs the show. But then again, despite the media and the politicians worldwide, ordinary people are waking up. Oh, yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, the surveys, as far as I know, in Australia show something like 70% of people think that um, the Palestinians have been treated badly. But why, the, why the, uh, the people in Canberra or in state governments uh, don't have the courage to 
express that. I'm, 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 I'm disappointed. Of course, of course, some do. I mean, the Greens Party is uh, usually courageous on these things, but um, the Murdoch-governed media loves only to be derisive of anything the Greens stand for, even combating um, climate change. You'll be talking about human rights again later this week, back in your old stamping ground of the University of Sydney, and with you will be Craig Foster. Initially, we knew him as a soccer player, but more recently as a human rights activist. Correct. Look, Craig has probably become one of the most significant human rights activists in this country, partly because he he does what he says he's going to, he is going to do, partly because he's courageous, partly because he, he walks the walk as well as talks the talk. I mean, he goes to detention centres where refugees have been locked up for, for eight years in this country, you know, where two people are sharing a bunk bed and have done for years and years, and yet the leader of the country claims he's a Christian and the cultural symbolism is all about mateship. So... Yeah, no, Craig is an, has become an inspiring, inspiring leader. Part, it's also impressive that, he's, that he, for all his achievements, he's a rather humble uh, human being. Who's the moderator and how will the meeting go? Oh, well, the moderator is Liz Deep-Jones. She's the former senior journalist producer with, with SBS Television. Look, she's going to interview us about a range of issues about what does cruelty mean, what do you mean by redefining humanity? What do you mean by um, redefining politics and human rights? And in the light of that, what alternative ways must we live, alternative conversations must we have to create an alternative world? There's also going to be a couple of brilliant Congolese singers, Miriam and Jemima, you know, who are in their, by their very presence make a statement to us. I mean, there's two young women who spent eight, over eight years of their lives in a wretched refugee camp in Malawi before getting here. And they are five-star musicians, so they, they're going to kick off that. There will be a, um, a young Rohingya poet talking about the dire predicament of her people marooned on a treeless hill somewhere in um, Bangladesh. The other thing I might add is... Um, you know, we're going to, I certainly will be saying something about the necessary demise of capitalism at, on, on Thursday evening. Will it be recorded, Stuart? Well, I hope so. I've got a meeting tomorrow with, with the, all the people involved in, in producing it and ensuring that all the um, audiovisual material is, is there. I'm sure it will be, but I don't... Um, because I'm one of these people who still writes with a pencil on a piece of paper. I'll have to answer that question tomorrow. Well, you've got a big one coming up early June with Richard Falk and Joseph Camilleri. Perhaps you could just talk about those two men for a moment. Richard Falk, his memoir is called Public Intellectual, The Life of a Citizen Pilgrim. He's probably the most significant jurist in the Western world. Along with Noam Chomsky, I put those two, you know, pretty close together. He's a wonderful, inspiring human being. For so many years, he was Kofi Annan's representative um, for the occupied territories, the United Nations representative there. Uh, he's, he's Jewish. 
he has been with and interviewed just about everybody, significant leaders from the Ayatollah Khomeini to Saddam Hussein, etc. He's, he's consistently committed to living by and exploring universal human rights. Joe Camilleri is a product of, um, of Australia, brilliant innovator, wonderful communicator, former professor of international relations at La Trobe. And uh, Joe has created this system called Conversation at the Crossroads. He's committed to asking questions about what's this alternative world we have to prepare for, we have to create post-COVID. So those are the two people. But he's also, they've produced an amazing lineup of international figure, international contributors from around the world, from Hanan Ashrawi in Palestine to uh, the professor of international law at La Trobe, a wonderful uh, Nepalese, Nepalese academic to a professor of international relations at um, the University of Rome and so on. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible lineup. And this is a worldwide conversation, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a, he's, he's, yes, it's worldwide. It's going on for two hours so that people can take a breath in the middle and avoid only having talking heads. There will be that wonderful four-minute recording of an Italian pianist on a grand piano in the middle of the Arctic playing the piano while the icebergs melt and crash around him. In other words, we have to address the plunder of the planet as well as the um, uh, promotion of human rights among every human being who lives on the planet. And is that what you want to contribute to the conversation? Yeah, I think so. I think what I want is a, a lang what I call a language for humanity. Uh, Jan, if we do not have the language to envision the survival of the planet, a, a more equal and socially just future, then we can't even paint the scenario of what we are trying to achieve. There has to be what I'm calling a language for humanity. That's what my book's about. That's what I will be talking to uh, Professor Richard Falk and to Joe Camilleri in 10 days' time. If people want to get involved, they would go to the webpage to get, engage themselves? The webpage of Conversation at the Crossroads. I mean, of course, it's free, but uh, to, make the, to make the Zoom hookup, you have to register. Have you been together with these two men before? I've spent a lot of time with both of them. I, I mean, every time I, I'm in Melbourne, I um, have more than a conversation in an Italian restaurant on Ligon Street with Joe Camilleri. That's a fillip to our spirits. And I've spent a lot of time with um, Professor Richard Falk, some of it in the Middle East, some of it in that meeting that I referred to with the leadership of Hamas, some of it on the east coast of the United States. He's 10 years older than me and has, has had an amazingly distinguished uh, academic and political career. But we share the human rights agenda. We share uh, using music and poetry to to identify what a more socially just future would look like. And also it points to the fact that even though people retire from their, maybe their paid job, the work goes on. Absolutely. I mean, you know, 40% of people in the latest surveys, they want to stop doing the 
the work they're doing so that they can do something useful with their lives. Can't get into it here, but one of the issues about the future is you, we will have to redefine what we mean by work. And, and that's really going to raise questions about income, not necessarily work. That's why I will be saying something about the necessary demise of capitalism. Thank you once again, Stuart. Okay, Jan, look, thank, thank you for having this conversation because this sort of conversation is precisely what we should be talking about. I've been speaking to Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees and get on to crossroadsconversations.com.au if you'd like to take part in that webinar. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.